We'll get started, and we got a small crowd tonight, and that's okay. We are going to be talking about, uh, in chapter 1, the treasures of the Lord. Remember we said we were going to do that last week, that we're brought back uh, from Babylon, and we'll be looking at those and maybe get into chapter 2, but we'll see what, what happens here. Uh, so Ezra chapter 1, can I go down just a little bit? Thank you. Yeah, please, I think we're ready for that. Ezra 1, and we've been working through some of the introduction and what is happening here, and we'll be ready to pick up uh, for this second half of the chapter, beginning in verse 5, and we'll go from there. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we just thank you for um, how good you are to us and how you care for us each day and you preserve us. How even as we were reminded this morning of your love for us that's unchangeable and unbreakable. And so we praise you and we thank you for that. Now, Lord, as we're going to look at Ezra chapter 1 and finish this up, and we just praise that you would help us now and help us to learn some things and make some connections. And so I, I pray that. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we have, of course... Um, what we looked at last week is Cyrus. We spent pretty much the whole week on Cyrus and the Lord stirring up his heart to send everybody back. And remember, that was historically proven, right? Uh, in that Cyrus cylinder. So something that would have sounded very far-fetched to people was actually proven true through archaeology and that very important discovery that they made back in the 1800s uh, on finding that. And uh, then we talked a little bit about um, the idea of God stirring up the heart and the idea that God can work in people to will. Paul puts it this way. He works in people both to will and to do his good pleasure. And that God has certainly a sovereignty and access over the heart uh, of an individual and can lay it up on their hearts. And the people that end up going back, it is important to understand that not all of the people of Israel that were in Babylon go back at this time. And um, there are some that go back and there are others that do not go back. And we'll look more closely at what Ezra lists in chapter 2 as those who are going back. But why do we think that some of the Jews... Uh, in, the, in this day, or in, uh, in that day in, in Babylon, chose not to go back. They got pretty comfortable there, didn't they? Yeah. That's right, yeah. I think they d many of them didn't have it bad. Sometimes we think about them maybe being as they were in Egypt, uh, enslaved in that way, and it doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, some of them even rose to prominence, like Daniel. Is a good example of that. And so we have the situation where they're there. God told them that while they were there to seek the good of the city that they were in, to seek the welfare of the general populace, to do what they had to do and wait for him to send them back. So they weren't doing anything wrong with that as they were uh, doing their business and different things. There was nothing wrong with that. But here comes the occasion that they could go back. And I think some of them maybe had good, valid reasons for not returning. If you think about just us and our own lives and our own families, some might not have been able to. Some, some due to age and health, they couldn't make the journey. This wasn't like a, 
you know, let's hop in the car and, and, and drive to the state over. I mean, it's a big deal to go back and to resettle and such. And so there are some of that way. But I think uh, some of them perhaps did had the wrong reason that they were too comfortable where they were. And the thought of going back to this destroyed city uh, that maybe some of them even born into that situation hadn't even really been to or remembered uh, to go back there and rebuild the temple. They just didn't ha- capture that vision. And so the fact that God stirred up their hearts, some of them, to go back is just a sign of God working in the hearts of his people to do something that would have been very challenging. As we'll see in a couple of chapters, as soon as they get there, they experience the challenges that come from the surrounding communities of where they're building and such. So, but I think if we think about that as Americans, and you think about the Great Commission, where God has, Jesus has commissioned us to take the gospel to the nations and to be active in ministry and to serve one another. And you think about uh, how hard it is to find people willing to do that. I think that the problem is we do get very comfortable. We can get very comfortable in our lives, and we need to guard against that to a degree to where we are willing and able to serve the Lord wherever we can, right? And uh, one of the prophets, and we'll look at this down the road, will chastise the people of Israel when the temple's not being rebuilt, and he'll say, you all sit in your paneled houses, and my house sits in ruins. You know, what are you doing? So getting them to, to stirring them up to participate in this purpose that God has uh, for the nations and um, even probably seeing themselves in Babylon as I'm just passing through here, right? I'm not supposed to be here forever type of thing. There's a similar connection that I think we are to have in our lives. Yesterday, we went through the parade of covetousness. Anybody go through that this weekend or last weekend? You ever heard of the parade of covetousness? Yes, the parade of homes. I'm sorry, I got the name wrong. And so you go through these, you go through those houses, you know, and you're like, this is amazing. You know, you go in some of these rooms and the theater rooms and all this that they have. It's really beautiful. It actually is. And you can get some, the one, yeah, the castle one where you walk across a drawbridge and everything else. So, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I enjoy going through, and I'm not, I'm not knocking anybody that goes through, and it showcases the builder's work and that, and they, they're trying to drum up support. But we live fairly comfortably in the United States, and sometimes that can pose a problem with, with the hearts of God's people and even getting them engaged in life. And life here can be very distracting in other things. But we need to remember, right, that we're the people of God, And we have purpose and mission that begins with serving one another in the body. Um, It's interesting when Paul was talking to the Philippian church and he said, he said, I'm going to send to you Timothy. He said, because I don't have anyone else that would, you know, be genuinely concerned for your welfare and and be willing to go take care of you or what have you. So, um, we need to be reminded that Uh, we are here for God and for a purpose. And I know even myself, I 
I'm not throwing stones at anybody. I know what it is to get comfortable and to get, think about some prospect of something and say, wow, that would be, that would be challenging. It would take a lot of time. It would be hard work. It would be this, that, and it would interrupt my comfort. But um, this is what we're here for. But again, many of them stayed and uh, it, it could have been for very valid and good reasons um, that they had to stay at this time. Yeah, Vivi. Yes. So we all know that it doesn't take very many generations. That's right. That's right. Yes. That's right. That's right. So, okay, good. Now let's look at these. So what is what happens here? Uh, if you look at verse. Uh, Let's read verse 5. Then uh, rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. So there were senders, um, and that's important too, even in the concept of... um, um, great commission. Not everybody is called to go, but some sinned, right? But now listen to this, verse 7. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithredath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem." These are in reference to what we'll call the, or what the scriptures call the treasures of the Lord. They are uh, instruments, uh, basins, different things that were used in the worship of God in the temple, different things that have been dedicated over the years. And of course, when there would be invading armies, they would take those things with them because they were extremely valuable as were shown here what they're made of, things like gold and and other things. But these were in the temple. And um, it is interesting to uh, note two things about them. The first is that these were valuable things that were made, bronze, silver, and gold. Some of these were huge, like that cast metal sea it referred to. It's 15 feet in diameter, It sat on the back of 12 bronze bulls. Its capacity was 2,000 baths of water, which is 11 gallons. And the priests would use this, the uh, basin for ritual washings connected to the temple. There was a large altar of pure gold, uh, 10 tables and uh, 10 seven uh, branch candlesticks, pots, shovels, bowls, flesh hooks, other things that were in there. But many of these were very, very valuable. And the reason that's something to take note of is the fact that Nebuch- or, uh, Cyrus was sending it back. Uh, this is, uh, we want to ask ourselves the question, why would this king not only send these people back, but why would he send these very 
valuable treasures. That's what they're called, treasures that were part of the temple to go back. And I think the answer to that is very clearly that this was part of Jeremiah's prophecy of what the Lord would do. The Lord said he would send not only the people back, but these things that were part of the temple. So if you look uh, at Jeremiah in verse, uh, chapter 27, I'll show you this. This was part of Jeremiah's prophecy. Not only would they go back, not only would the people go back, but God would send back these things that ultimately belonged to him. Verse 19 of Jeremiah 27 for thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, the sea, the stands, and the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take away when he took into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 21, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and the house of the king of Judah and Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon. And remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. And then at a certain point, there's another prophecy in chapter 28 that very clearly says within this amount of days, I'm going to send these things back. This was a fulfillment of the prophecy of God that not only would these people be sent back by Cyrus, but that he would send these valuable treasures of the Lord's back. So these things were valuable. This is clearly a fulfillment of prophecy. And again, we hear, we see the recurring theme, the word of the Lord always comes to pass. And it always comes to pass in the way that the Lord said it would come to pass, right? And he's fulfilling it right down to these vessels that were left in, uh, or in Babylon that God sent back. Now, I want to trace these. I want to show you something because I want to lead to a point with these that I thought was interesting as I was thinking about it. Let's trace the history of these. Oh, I'm looking. I'm going to see it. I'm not because I didn't turn that one on. There is a history to these, um, these treasures of the Lord. Okay? So these were all things that at various times, beginning in Solomon, that were made and created and placed in the temple. Okay? And, uh, but what we'll see is as you trace the history, the biblical history of these, because they keep showing up over and over again, it's largely, you can, you can trace the decline, the sin decline of Israel and Judah right down to the deportation as how they treated these vessels and these treasures. Okay? You can actually trace the decline in this. Here's what I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Rehoboam in 931 to 913 BC, this was only one generation removed from the building of the temple. He gave 300 shields of beaten gold from the temple to Shishak, king of Egypt, as a bribe to not hurt them, okay, or to help them. Uh, secondly, King Asa. 911 to 870 BC gave them to Ben Hadad of Syria. He bribed Ben Hadad to turn against the king of northern Israel who was making war with Asa. Now, let me pause here and say this. These kings who have responsibility over these treasures of the Lord that had been set apart, understand that everything that was in the temple, all these treasures, were sacred. They were sacred. 
They were set apart for the Lord and his service. They didn't belong to the king. They were not his possession to do with as he wishes. They belonged to God and they were entrusted to the people of Israel. To the extent that God had set apart people that worked at the temple just to take care of these. That was their job. Okay? And here we have kings that are giving them away to bribe other nations to either leave them alone or help them in other things. They're going into the sacred treasuries of the Lord and they're giving these things away. King Joash of Judah, 835 to 796 BC, gave them to Hazael, king of Syria, for the same reason. Number four, King Jehoash of Israel, after plundering Judah, took them back to uh, Samaria. I missed one there, I think. When I Oh, it was on the other one? Okay, so, and that's number five. Uh, king Ahaz of Judah gave them as a gift to Razan, king of Syria. King Hezekiah gave them as tribute to Sennacherib of Assyria, even cutting the gold from the doors of the temple in order to give to the enemies of, of Israel. And then, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, over three deportations that we looked at, three invasions there of Judah, bringing them out, cut some of the furniture, the great basin that we were talking about, into pieces so they could be transported. He cut up the great sea basin. And then the last time we see him show up, whoops, I'm sorry. No, oh, come on now. Why are you upsetting me like this? Oh, there we No. Okay, and then the, one, the last time we show him, see him show up is in Daniel chapter 5 uh, when we talked about that with Belshazzar last week and he was having that uh, drunken religious thing that he had going on and they were using those uh, treasures of the Lord. But the problem is, is that these were sacred. They'd been consecrated to God. They belonged to God. God had entrusted them to the people. And you can see their decline over the years. Couldn't you see that? The decline of the people could be traced by how they treated the Lord's possessions. Getting themselves in trouble with other nations. And instead of turning to the Lord, as they should have, they do things like steal from the Lord to give to other nations to protect them. Or to barter or whatever it is that they were Doing And then finally, as a sign of God's judgment with Nebuchadnezzar, even those are taken and they're deported to Babylon um, to the Lord. So the series of plunderings of the treasures of the house of the Lord were early indicators that a process of spiritual deterioration had long been underway. As Israel departed further from God... She witnessed the departure of her sacred items. The slow, steady removal testified to the gradual erosion of her worship, her consecration, and her blessing, and it eventually landed to the total destruction. Now, so what? Why do you think I'm bringing this out? What can we learn from that? What could be a parallel 
to us. Oh, you mean uh, the, the federal government giving billions of dollars <laughs> to, to our yeah. enemies uh, yeah. at, at the cost of uh, the people? Yeah, but I'm thinking more in line of the church. Yes, that's stupid. But, but I'm talking about... That is the decline of a nation. Yeah, you can see things like that in a decline of a nation. That's a good point, okay? But let's think about this in the church, okay? And let me show you, and maybe I'll, 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 I'll bring this out to you. I want you to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 for a moment. I'll make this other application too. Um, There's actually a few of them I can make before I get to 2 Timothy 3, but find 2 Timothy 3. Spiritual deterioration always goes over time. It can be traced over time in all our lives. John, yep? The acceptance of the woke culture into the church. Yes, yes. Okay, that's a good one. Where, uh, and, and what we'll see in a, in a minute here is there's this slow and gradual, whether you look at a denomination, certain churches, Whatever it is, there is a slow and gradual deterioration where they give up things they had no right to give up in order to appease culture, in order to bring people in or whatever until it's a total and complete collapse of the institution of the church. This kind of spiritual decline happens at the church level, the Christian university level, the seminary level. Uh, seminaries, you see this kind of, what they do is they start bailing on things they had no right to bail on and the accepting of things that gradual decline, okay? The acceptance of homosexuality within the hierarchy of some churches. That's right, yes. Now watch this in 2 Timothy 3. I want to show you something. So in the Old Testament, people of Israel were given physical things that God said these are sacred, these things are sacred. These physical things, these, you know, meat cleavers and all that for the sacrifices and all these were all sacred. It's not like if you were having a barbecue at your house, you couldn't ask the priest to borrow the, the stuff from the, the utensils from the temple and bring them out, right? They're sacred. They're set apart from God. And this is special. These are, these are special sacred things set apart for God in his service. Now, word is sacred and it's important. Now, look at this. He says in verse 14, chapter 3 of verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from child from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What are these sacred writings? Look at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, that word sacred is really interesting, okay? It is a word that can be directly, it's a word that can be translated as temple, interestingly enough. Or things that were used for the temple. So as in, the, remember we talked about the Old Testament having a Greek translation, this Greek word be used for that as sacred things belonging to the Lord, things that belong to the temple, okay? Well, we don't have, we don't have these things anymore that God has said is sacred. Actually, to be honest with you, nothing in this room is sacred, okay? Anything for the church, nothing is sacred. Vivi, yes? No, 
I doubt it, but it's possible. Go for it. The word of God is here. Yes, that's what I was getting to. <laughs> Vivi, you just stole my thunder. Thanks. Now you know, you've been listening to me long enough to know to wait as I build into it. Oh, all right, let's pray. Vivi. Yes, it's the word, the only thing we've been given is the word of God. That's why he's referring to it as sacred writings, okay? Now, what you can do is if you want to trace the history of any liberal, what's become liberal, and I'm not talking about politically, I'm talking about religiously. I'm talking about Christianly liberal, okay, where they begin denying the Bible, they do this, whatever, even leading into the whole LGBTQ plus affirming situation or whatever, you can trace among those groups, those churches, those, those organizations, the decline, just like you do in Israel, they begin selling away, giving away different aspects of the word of God. It started all the, you know, even back in the, uh, 1800s, uh, when it, uh, the, the big spiritual decline came, it came with questioning the Word of God, portions of the Word of God. Something that you might not, you know, some might say, well, that's not as big a deal, like the virgin birth of Christ. Let's just begin with that. Well, do we really need to believe in the virgin birth of Christ to, you know, proclaim the gospel, they would ask, and they could get rid of a little bit here and a little bit there? Yes, go ahead, Bill. But don't steal my thunder. I'm kidding. Luther. Yes. And the church. Yes. The things that they were willing to compromise that he called them out for. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you can see the same kind of decline in certain ways if you see church history even before that uh, time. So these sacred, these, these sacred writings are the one thing the church has been given do they belong to the church in the sense of are these our writings? Do we say these are, the, these are our things that we say? No, these belong to God, right? They are sacred. We don't bail on them. Let me give you another illustration of this. You saw this happen in the seeker-sensitive movement. We talked a lot about that and the dangers of it and the problem with it is they began saying, we don't want to get rid of the Word of God because many of them, okay, claimed to be or still claimed that the Bible was the authoritative inerrant word of God. They weren't denying the virgin birth. They weren't denying the bodily resurrection. But what they started to say is that in the worship of God's people, in the worship of God's people, we don't need to use or we don't need to keep so much of the Bible because the world itself doesn't want this. So little by little, there's an erosion of the word. There's not any longer a, a sermon in the sense of what we would expect in a sermon where somebody opens a Bible, they read it, they preach it, they proclaim what it says, they're teaching what it says. There's a getting rid of more and more of the Bible until you have an absolute total collapse of what you're seeing in these situations. And so in the same way that they were, we could trace through these sacred um, Instruments we could trace through the decline of Israel. We can see even it within the church. As soon as they start talking about the Word of God, 
as soon as they start leaving it aside, as soon as they don't want as much out of it, as soon as they deny uh, things of its truthfulness, its inerrancy, its historical accuracy, we just bail more and more and more, and then you get a total collapse of that. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Yeah. You know, they still had to cut their hair and right. and what Baptists used to be like or Bible church people. Right. They're growing and <laughs> yeah. as going real secretly. Yeah. Does that cause the Christian church? I don't think so. Maybe some right. Yeah, and see, here's the interesting thing: when you when whenever we talk, if we look at the Mormon religion as an example. Um, what if we said is the one thing that God has given us that the writings that he calls sacred, right? It's his, the scriptures are sacred. So when there's an addition, that happens as well. So now worship is corrupted. The people of God are corrupted because now we've got these other writings that we're calling sacred. So what we have to understand is when we look in the scripture, we have the totality of what God has given to the church in worship. What I was saying earlier Two is that, you know, I grew up in a, in a church where um, I can remember one time we were running around in the church auditorium and the pastor grabbed me by the arm and he said, we don't run in the house of the Lord, right? And uh, I was like, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I was a respectful young man or whatever at that time, a little kid. And, uh, but more I thought about it, ultimately, we, this church building is not the house of the Lord. The people are the house of the Lord, right? So anything within this isn't sacred in the sense as what we would say of the instruments used in temple worship. That makes sense? Because, you know, like when we do things like if we rearrange in here and we did some remodeling and stuff, and that, makes a, that can be a big deal at times because people are are attached to certain things or whatever. And I understand that. I get attached to things myself. But we do have to admit, these aren't sacred things. We, you could, we could come in here and completely change this. We could do whatever we, you know, whatever. These aren't the sacred things. The thing that matters, the thing that is sacred, the thing that is set apart by God, the thing that is given, given to us, that is entrusted to us, is the Word of God. Okay, any questions on that? Good. Preaching to the choir, right? Yes. The sanctuary is running in this building. What's that? The sanctuary is running in this building. Okay. I'm trying to get it. What are we? You're, you're sacred, so. Oh. Oh, I get it. Yeah, that's what I should have said. But I was too young. I wouldn't have got that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, Pastor Reynolds. So there. What are you going to do with that one? Yeah. Yeah. But I do think, though, there is the element, I'm not agreeing with this mic tonight, but there is the element, though, where we do say, okay, uh, I don't want to ever communicate that the building isn't important and that the property that the Lord has graciously entrusted to us to use in these things aren't important. Stewardship is 100% right, and we, we always need people being good stewards of what we have and the resources we have. So I don't want to communicate that, and uh, 
I'm not trying to, to imply that to any degree, but, um, but we could, and many churches do, if you had to, you'd rent a gym building. You'd, from a, a school, you could, you know, meet in the storefront or something, or uh, the little picture that I have of um, the Russians in my office in the middle of winter and the snow's about three feet high and they're just standing out in the woods all kind of bundled up and they have the little Lord's Supper table there and they're, the pastor's preaching. It must have been during time of persecution. They had no building to meet in, right? We understand those things. So, Okay, so that's, um, let's see. Let's just talk for a minute. We only, maybe a, a few more minutes and we'll kind of intro chapter two here. Let me give you the overview of chapter two if this will work for me here. Chapter two is all about, it's not as much a genealogy as it is a listing of the people that return. That's exactly what it is, right? A listing of the people that return and the families that return. A genealogy would be a little different because you have um, so-and-so begat so-and-so. You're tracing a, a, a lineage back. This is not so much a genealogy as it is a, uh, a, manifest. a manifest, yeah, of, of people that came back. Just, uh, and it is interesting, isn't it, the records that were kept of all of this, right down to how many of the treasures were there and, and what were brought back, how many of the people were there. So if we look at this, you've got, um, in, in chapter 2, verse 2, you've got the name of 11 leaders, Chapter 2, verses 3 through 20 of the descendants listed in reference to family. Chapter 2, verse 21 through verse 35, you have descendants listed in reference to city. 36 to 39, you have the priests. This will become important because all of the divisions of the temple servants and those leading in worship and stuff are listed on, on who's coming back. Um... Verses 40 to 54, the Levites. Verse 41, the singers. David established the singers under Asaph who led the temple music. Uh, verse 42, the porters. Those were the gatekeepers, which was interesting. These, um, it reminds us of the verse in, uh, uh, in the Psalms that says, better is one day in your courts. Uh, I'd rather be a temple servant, or what is it, a gatekeeper in the, the house of my Lord than whatever, it, that's what they were headed back to do, you know. Uh, verses 43 to 54, the mean the word means the dedicated or given, possibly more common temple labors. We don't know 100% for sure. 55 to 57, the children of Solomon's servants. 59 to 63, people with uncertain ancestry. Uh, and then 64 to 67, the numeric totals, 68, 69, the temple gifts. And then in verse 70, there is that, um, that summary. Now, without going too far into this, and we'll probably talk about a few things with it next week, but why do you think this is important? Like if you were just reading through this and you probably get to this in your devotional time and you're like, would it be a sin if I just skipped to chapter three? Like if I just kind of got the, the idea and I didn't read through it. Why do you think these are listed? To show it's true. To show it's true? Yeah. Why would God have, why would people have listed all those things? Yeah. If it were just a, a, a myth or just, just one way of explaining something. Okay. You know, like the creation account, it's, it's specific. It's, but 
the liberals say, well, it's just their way of trying to uh, answer how the divorce began. Right, right. okay, good, good. Good, what else do you think? There'd be other reasons. Okay. And I think that these are the people that God called to do it. Yep, yep. Because not everybody went. That's right, that's right. Good. Yes. It looks like there's enough people there to start their, their society all over again. They have the, the people in their primary occupation in the 70 years past. Yeah, good. That's, and you're on to something there. We've got all that we need in the sense of to go back for what they were doing, and especially in the rebuilding the temple. Because remember in Ezra, this is what we're doing. We're rebuilding the temple. And so we need these people within the temple. But here's the thing, though. If we think about it, these are the Jewish people, right? And um, I think that when we see lists of names like this and we see God especially in Ezra, counting these people, naming them, putting them in their families' uh, order. And uh, I think what we're seeing is the faithfulness of God to preserve his people. I think, it's, I think it records the faithfulness of God to preserve his people. You know, there's a verse in here if I can find it. My notes are a little more scattered tonight, but let me see if I can find this for you. Because I think it's good. It's interesting that it talks about the people with uncertain ancestry yeah. kind of like us being grafted in. Like a picture of that. or a, You know, a, yeah, yep. Look at Jeremiah 31. We'll close with this. If you look at Jeremiah 31, in verses 35 to 37. This is what he said. So remember, Jeremiah is one of our key prophets when we're talking about the deportation and then they're coming back, right? He says, thus says the Lord, in verse 35 of Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Listen to this. If this fixed order departs from before me. So what's the fixed order he's talking about? Which you can see every day and night. The faithfulness of God. Right? If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Think how powerful that is. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast all off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, it can't happen. And it won't happen. And what we'll be getting into even in, you know, number of weeks or months, whenever January is, um, and we start talking, dealing in, in Romans chapter 9, we see this faithfulness of God to preserve ethnic Israel for his own purposes. Now, it gets a little tricky as we think through this thing, and I think all, 
All of us need to develop what, what we might call an Israelology. Like, what do we do with Israel? And it wouldn't, we wouldn't be the first ones to answer that question because that was the big deal in the early church. Like, what about God's covenants to them? What about his promises to them? All of these types of things, and people would question it. Paul makes a comment that we, even Gentiles, are sons of Abraham by faith. That a Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but one who is inwardly in the circumcision of the heart, those kinds of things. But yet there is this purpose that God has for these particular people, right? Where he would say, if the, if, if the fixed order of sun and moon disappear, that's when my commitment to preserve these people will be done. It's a marvelous thing. And I think much of what we see in these Passages that just have lists of names, um, God's divine intent or one of his primary divine intent is to say, look at me being faithful to preserve my people. Look at me being faithful to preserve these people just as I had promised to do. God has not forsaken, Romans 11 verse 2, the people whom he has foreknown. In that context, he was talking about the nation of Israel itself. And isn't that pertinent when we look at what's happening on the world landscape? And isn't it interesting? And even now to see what, they, what didn't even take more than two or three days for a large chunk of the people around the world to turn against Israel. First it was like, hey, our hearts go out to you because they're cutting off your baby's heads and all that, you know. But now all of a sudden, what reemerges towards these people is hatred, hostility. And um, though they're the most hated people, they are a preserved people. It just shows God's sovereignty. It shows his faithfulness to what he has said to do. It's really an amazing thing to watch. So, All right, we'll end it there, and we'll pick up where we left off. Okay. Yeah, Bill, I thought I saw your hand. Go ahead. I think it's interesting. There's the, the word remnant crops up throughout the Bible. Oh, yes. And, I, and, 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 and this, you have it. This is a remnant. This is a, a core of believers mm-hmm. for if you take a look at all of the times that the Israelites have been driven from their homeland and come back again, you have this core of believers, this remnant, which continues on to this day, yeah. regardless of everything that has happened to them. Yep. There's just this cohesiveness that just draws these people yep. uh, together. Yep. Uh, today, we don't see God central to their... In, in, in the way that we look at God through, through his son, we don't see that in, in the Jewish community. But still, there is this something that keeps them right. there. Yep, yeah, that's right. And that we, yeah, well, we can talk, we'll talk a little more about that, uh, the remnant issue next week, that's re- or next time, that's really um, important. Next week is a fall festival. So we won't have our class, but we'll have a fall festival instead. So you can stay to that and talk about Ezra if you'd like. Sandy. Um, I, I keep thinking about Cyrus, king of Persia, mm. and how you know, Jeremiah was involved in this, and God moved Cyrus's heart to get started with this. And it just amazes me how God could use somebody like that. Mm. Yeah. Somebody that serves the Lord, but he 
Right. That's right. Yes. Yep. And your response to it, what you just said, is exactly what God was going for when he did it. To get people to say, look what God has done. Right? So, good. All right, one more. Bill. Okay. Uh, in, in, in relationship to Israel, I saw something that was posted uh, re- recently. And it showed a 1945 National Geographic photo of that land. And everything through there is Palestine. And the question was, when did the land of the Palestinians become the land of the Jews? Now this is obviously a question posed by a person who doesn't know their history. Hmm. Because the land, very specifically, boundaries and stuff, was laid out to Abraham by God as to the land that, that his descendants would possess. Right. There's a lot of people out there that say the Israelites, the Jews, have no right to this land Mm -hmm. that they are occupying. I think that's an interesting... Very interesting. Yep. All right. Well, let's pray. God, thank you so much for just your sovereignty and your working, your power, um, your providence, and all working for our good. We trust in you. We thank you for it. And uh, I pray that we would have a good week this week in you and live and walk in godly ways. And we know we need your help for that. So we pray that that would happen and we would bring glory to you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, thanks everybody.